see if I can get that on. I might, you can hear me. I can tell. Good morning. Uh, under the, uh, and I'm, I might say this again at, at 11, but uh, under the be nice to your students category, uh, back when Owen was a student at OBU, you know, I mean, he's just a snotty-nosed freshman when I first meet him, and I think, is there any reason to be extra special nice to this young man other than he was nice? Uh, obviously, uh, yes, because now he's a trustee at OBU, which means uh, he's my boss. I mean, I don't answer directly to him, but he could have me summoned, and I'd have to answer to him. But then, even more than just being uh, a trustee, which makes him my boss, now he's also on the search committee. We're looking for a president, you know. And I'm thinking seriously about putting my name in the hat, and I figure he can just name me president. No, I'm joking. I'm not, I'm not thinking about putting. Uh, not that anybody would even consider me, and I'm certainly not, <laughs> not interested. I can't take the pay cut to be president, so, uh, but I, I am very interested in who they, who they uh, find and who they get, but uh, this is 22 years at, at OBU, and uh, about that many here <laughs> now that, that I'm thinking about it, um, but OBU's been a great place, and OBU's been strong uh, through now three presidents I've been there, and I'm sure it will continue to be, but it is quite, uh, quite an honor uh, for Owen, not only that he was asked to be a trustee, but also that among the trustees, they selected him to be one of the people on the presidential, ser presidential search committee. Did you all know that? Had he told you that? See, he's very humble. So I, I, he brings me in to brag on it. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, it's, so I'm, I'm proud of Owen and so happy he's here and good to be back here. I knew you uh, probably as long as I've known Owen before you all got together. I knew both of you separately. And so I'm always happy to come back here, look forward to it <clears throat> every time. Uh, there's so many of you that I've had, had uh, good, uh, good warm uh, experiences over this whole time. Some of you have come in later, uh, some of you since Owen came here, but many of you I remember back in that other building uh, when I first started coming there. So I'm glad to be back. This year, uh, it's not the book of Revelation. That would be frightening if we had to try to get through the whole book of Revelation. But that's not the Winter Bible Study. It's Revelation chapters 1 through 3. So it sounds frightening at first. And uh, then you discover, no, it's just the, set, the letters to the seven churches and, and then the introductory chapter, chapter 1. So that's all we're going to, I mean, that's enough. But that's what we have to cover. So here's how I'm going to try to go about that. In this morning Sunday school lesson time, we're, we're going to do basically chapter 1. So chapter 1 begins with the prologue. You've got um, about nine, eight or nine verses, eight verses of sort of just introduction to Revelation as a whole. And then in 9 through 20 of chapter 1, you have what is one of the most important sections in Revelation, this vision that John has of the exalted Christ. And it's important because it sort of frames how you think about the rest of the book of Revelation. And every one of the seven letters is, should be read through the lens of this image of the exalted Christ. He's the one who's really sending these letters to these seven churches. And then when we come back um, for the worship service at 10, what, 1030, um, 1015, 1030, whatever time that starts, uh, then we're going to do the letter to the church at, at Ephesus, which is the, the, the first church. And then we'll pick up uh, three or four of the churches in the two hours tonight, and then we'll finish it on Wednesday night 
with however many churches I have left at that point. I'm hoping two churches to do on Wednesday night. So that's how we're going to go. And so let's get started. Have you got some notes there with you that kind of get you into uh, this, this, what we're going to be covering? So the big picture here you can see is prologue, then the vision among the churches, 1, 9 through 20, and then the letters to the seven churches. So let's begin uh, with the prologue. As we sort of start to think about the book of Revelation, it's an interesting time uh, in, in, to be alive in the United States right now. I just feel like it's, and there's always issues that you can talk about. It's, it's a time where we're uncertain and there are challenges, but, but I feel at this time, particular time in my life, there's as much fear and uncertainty about where we're going, about what direction we need to go, uh, as I can ever remember. And a lot of that's rooted in political uncertainties in which we live at this time. It seems that Americans are having a very difficult time even being able to agree on who we are as a people, as a nation. I mean, there just seems to be a breakdown of the ability even to agree together about who we are as a nation. And, and when you add to that, who do we look to, who do we trust to give us the facts, to tell us what is true? It's very difficult to have a nation where people can get along together when they can't agree on the basic facts about which we live our lives. And the question about who can you trust for the basic facts. And, and we hear phrases like fake news and, and, and those kinds of things. And so you, you, you start to wonder, well, who can I trust? And there's such this feeling of uncertainty about what direction we're going, what direction we need to go. Now, some of that's always been true, but I feel it's more true in, in our political lives, which is a big part of our lives as we live as American citizens in the U.S. I feel like that's as much as I've ever seen it in, in, in my 53 years. So what do we need when we're filled with uncertainty, when, we're, when we feel like maybe we're losing control of our own lives, we're losing control of the direction that maybe our country is going? What do we need in times like that? Well, we need, a lot, we need several things, but one thing we desperately need is to know that although we might feel like there's a loss of control of things and maybe I don't have a good control of my own life and we can't agree on these basic facts, what we need to be reminded of is that God has not lost control of God's world. The world as a whole or even of the United States. We need this image, this vision that Christ is still sovereign over the nations. Now, he's the sovereign Lord over all creation, but we also need to be reminded that he's near to us and that we, he is ultimately going to vindicate us as his people, no matter what challenges we might face in the world. And when you're feeling the need for that, when you're feeling the need for affirmation, for vindication, to know that God still has control of, the, of God's world, that it's not just spinning out of control, that somehow God is guiding history to its proper conclusion, not just that history is going to come to an end, I mean, that's one thing, to say, well, at some point, this chaos and this out-of-control nature of the world in which we live is just going to end. No, nope, that's not the message of Scripture, nor of the book of Revelation. 
It is that no matter how we might feel like the world is out of control and no matter how much we might feel like we've lost control, God is guiding history to its proper conclusion, not just an end, that there is purpose in the events that happen. And, and I think we need that message. And no book in Scripture makes that, that point and, and gives us that message stronger than the book of Revelation. And we're not going to do all of it, but even in these first three chapters, I think we begin to see something of the God who still, who not only created all that is, but still controls it. So let's begin with the prologue to this book of Revelation. It's verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And we'll start with the first part of the prologue. The first three verses is just a basic opening to the book of Revelation. So here it is. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So in this opening, it starts. The first word in the Greek text, and the, even the first word in the English text, it's a definite article in English, but it's the revelation. In the first word, it's a Greek word, apocalypsis. In the first word, you find out the nature of what this work is that he's writing. It is an apocalypse. And we hear the word apocalyptic and we probably think a lot of things, but the word just means disclosure or revealing. It is a word that, that speaks of God revealing something that would otherwise be unknown. And that's what this whole work is. It's, it's the word that opens it, apocalypse, the revelation. Now this word appears other places in the New Testament, uh, where it's not referring to a type of literature, where it's just re referring to God revealing himself or revealing something about himself. And a few of those are worth noting. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, and I'm going to read these texts to you, and, and so there's no need to jump around. You can just listen, or you can look it up if you'd like, but I'm going to read them. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, we find out revelation with respect to God's wrath and God's judgment. Paul says, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now there's the word revelation, but it's specifically talking about God's wrath, God's judgment, which you can't currently see. At the moment, you might see some aspects of God's judgment, but you don't see the full judgment, the full wrath of God. So Paul speaks about the revelation, the disclosure, the unveiling of God's wrath in chapter 2, verse 5. The word is also used to refer to the appearing of Jesus, of Jesus showing up where we can see him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's the word. It's not talking about a type of literature like the book of Revelation. It's talking about the appearing of Jesus. 
That is the revelation of Jesus, the disclosure, the making him known. So at the present time, it is not accurate to say Jesus is not here. I mean, Jesus went up into the clouds and, and, the, and the disciples watched it, but he promised them, uh, I'm going to send my presence, the, the promise of the Father. So when the Spirit comes 10 days later at Pentecost, the presence of Jesus is among us. It was among them then and it continues to be among us. So it's not accurate to say Jesus is somehow not here and we need him to be disclosed. It's true that we can't see him presently. We have his presence. But the, this revelation that, that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians is where he is made known. He is with us, we just can't see him. But here it's talking about that day when we see him, when, when he is disclosed, when he is revealed. The one who is with us now, but revealed in the clouds. This is another way to talk about revelation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, same idea. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there it is again, at the appearing of Jesus. He's with us now, but we can't currently see him. Here is a reference to the revelation of Jesus where he becomes visible. And then the last time, uh, way that this word is used in the New Testament is Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, where it speaks of a direct encounter uh, with the risen Lord. This is Paul's talking about the road to Damascus. In Galatians 1.12, he said, I did not receive my gospel from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ, direct encounter, where something was disclosed to him there that he otherwise did not know, namely that Jesus is Lord and risen from the dead and gave him his, his gospel and his calling. So these are different ways that revelation is spoken about in the New Testament. But here, our task for this weekend, or today and Wednesday night, is revelation as a type of literature. The book of revelation, a book of unveiling, a book of disclosure of things that would otherwise be unknown. So we learn in the first word the nature of this work. It is an apocalypse. But look, look a little bit further, look down in verse 3, we also find out that it's not merely an apocalypse, it's also prophecy, like a prophetic book. Uh, look at verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now think about the difference between an apocalypse and a prophetic book or a prophetic word. Prophecy is just someone inspired by the Spirit who speaks for God. And, and we, we sometimes confuse prophecy with prediction. We think about prophets as people who predict the future, who are predicting things that are going to happen in the distant future, usually. Um, we think about somebody, you know, who's a prophet. We, we say things like, well, I'm no prophet, but I think, you know, the world's going to end in 2050. Like, like prophecy is prediction. But in Scripture, prophecy is rarely about predicting anything beyond the immediate time. Prophecy is speaking forth the word of the Lord to God's people at a particular time, 
almost always calling them to repent. Now, apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, can, can call you to repent, but that's not the point of it. The point of apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, is to say to God's people who are feeling a loss of control, who might be facing alienation in, in their culture in which they live, who might even be suffering physically, violence, because they're Christians. The book of Revelation says to them, unveils to them, reveals to them that God has not lost control of God's world. God is going to show himself as the true God, and he's going to vindicate you as his people. So it gives us confidence to live in a world that's gone wrong. Prophecy calls us to repent. Not to predict the distant future, but to say, look at your life. Repent of your sins. This is the word of the prophets. You are an idolatrous people. Every one of the prophets in the Old Testament gets around to calling Israel idolatrous. You have committed an idolatry. You have worshipped other gods. Your heart has gone after other lovers. Now repent. Or for the Old Testament prophets, it's not caring for the least among you. What we might call some of those social justice kinds of issues. Making sure there is fairness in the world. Uh, that, that people aren't discriminated against because of the color of their skin. These are, these are the kinds of issues that the prophets were interested in. That you're caring for the orphans and the widows. That you're taking care of the least among you. And I think there's a whole host of these kinds of issues that we ought to care about because the prophets did. And they said, if you're not caring for the least among you, repent. And, and then the prophets often talked about this other sin of just going through the motions of your worship. Just going through the motions of your relationship to God. I mean, these are the big three issues the prophets are always hitting. And um, I think we're susceptible to all of those in our own day. It's very easy for us to become idolatrous. I mean, we don't have, I'll show you. I brought it for the morning service, but uh, wondering where that idol came from. Uh, I happen actually to br have brought an idol with me today. Uh, you're welcome to come and see it. I would guess it's the first time an idol's been sitting on the pulpit here. Uh, but this is Artemis. The goddess Artemis, actually, I bought this in Ephesus, so it kind of goes with the sermon this morning. Uh, but uh, there, there's an idol. Now, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anyone at OBU or in any of the churches I've been to in Oklahoma where I saw someone carrying a trinket or an idol and actually worshiping it rather than God. I'm going to hide this now. I don't, I don't want that as the thing you're fixing your eyes on. I mean, that's, that's the kind of idol worship often the, the prophets are condemning. I mean, because they were, they were fashioning idols out of wood or stone or something and then worshiping it as if it were God. I don't see a lot of that kind of idolatry. But the heart of idolatry is elevating something in your life above God. It doesn't have to be fashioned out of wood or stone. And, and prophecy calls, your, calls you on the carpet for your idolatry and says, repent of that. Your heart has gone after other lovers. Repent to God. And, um, and then the religious sort of going through the motions. I mean, there's, none, there's no room for that in Revelation. 
The worship that you see in Revelation is genuine. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and is to come. The Alpha and the Omega, and over and over and over again, you see the, the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and they're bowing down and they're worshiping. That's what the prophets were calling God's people to do, to, to genuinely worship. And um, I, I fear that a lot of what goes on when we gather together to worship is, is very much just a going through the motion of things. This is what we do at Sunday morning, and the ritual's good. It's better than not having the ritual and doing something else. But there should be something about it when we come together here, something authentic, something genuine, something that we recognize this is not just what we do, what we go through the motions. I've got the opportunity to opportunity to encounter the risen Lord when I gather together with my brothers and sisters and, and a certain expectation about it and what God might do in speaking to us or, or convicting us and changing us, that possibility that when we come together something unusual can happen, that expectation is part of what the prophets were all about. So you, you might feel yourself convicted about your worship when you read the book of Revelation. It is an apocalypse. It's about disclosing things that otherwise would be unknown about God's control of the universe and we are his people and he's going to vindicate his name. It's also a prophetic word that calls us to repentance. So it's, it, it has like, it's, it's, it's an apocalypse, it's prophecy, but it's also a letter. And of course that's going to take a lot of our attention today and, to, and Wednesday night, but look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. What does that sound like? Well, that could be 1 Corinthians or Romans. Paul, uh, apostle, uh, to the churches at Corinth or the churches of Thessalonica, grace and peace to you. What do we call that? It's a letter. Well, when you, by verse 4 already, it's John to the seven churches, grace and peace to you. It sounds just like one of Paul's letters. So, Revelation is apocalyptic literature designed to say to us that God has not lost control of the world. Have confidence. It's prophecy. It can call us to repentance. And it's an epistle. It's a letter written to these seven churches who find themselves in some of the same situations we might find ourselves in. And we, we probably find a lot of common ground with them and the struggles that they had and the struggles that we continue to have. And here's God's word to us in the form of these letters to the seven churches. So that's the nature of the work. It is a revelation. It is a prophetic work. It is a letter. Going on in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is from Jesus and it is about Jesus. It, it, it is given to John by Jesus. But look at the sort of chain of revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So somehow it works. God gives the revelation to Jesus. Jesus gives the revelation to John. John, through the work of the Spirit, records it, writes it down for us. That's sort of the chain of revelation here. It is a revelation from Jesus, but it's also about Jesus. And the purpose of it, he says, also in verse 1, 
is to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, soon is a little bit of a relative term when it comes to God. Uh, you know, a hundred years is a long time for us. Uh, even 2,000 years sounds like a long time for us. Uh, I'm not sure that's true when it comes to God's way of thinking about time. But soon still means soon. Something happening in the near future. And I think it's a mistake to read the book of Revelation as if it's written for this first century audience, but nothing really comes to fulfillment for them. It's all coming to fulfillment for us. And, and I would resist that. I would think that the vast majority of what we read in Revelation had a fulfillment for that first century audience and that when, when they heard that this was to re reveal what must soon take place. Look at the, the end of verse 3. Blessed are those who hear it, take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Look at chapter 22. Now that's the beginning of the Revelation. Look at chapter 22. 22.6. Now here's the conclusion, the last chapter. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then again, verse 10. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. So I think the, 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 a great deal of what we read about in the book of Revelation, you can see a fulfillment of that in the lives of that original audience as they're, as they're under persecution by, at the hands of the Romans. Probably Domitian at the end of the first century, the, the emperor Domitian at the end of the first century. That's probably the situation in which they find themselves, suffering because of their faith. And, and here is a revelation about what must soon, what will soon happen and what's going to soon be disclosed to them. Now that's not to say everything has come to fulfillment. But we should start by asking about what might be fulfilled among that original audience. So it is a revelation. It is from Jesus. And the purpose of it is to reveal what must soon take place. What must take place, what is necessary to happen. It's an interesting little word in the New Testament. It's just a little Greek word, day. It means it is necessary or it must happen. It must. Here is a, just in a, in a small Greek word, something of the necessity of the events that happen at, because of God's providence. That there, there are things that happen in the world that are necessary, that must happen, because God has designed it so. It, it's a statement of God's providence in one little word. It is necessary, or it must, what must happen. And, and it reminds us that things aren't just happening by chance in the world. As much as it might feel that way to us, it, it's part of God's purpose in moving creation to its proper conclusion. A few places in the New Testament where this same little word occurs, and notice how it speaks of necessity, divine necessity. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, here's the words of Jesus. The Son of Man 
must suffer many things. Or you might translate it, it is necessary, the Son of Man, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Now, doesn't that sound like that's divine necessity? In speaking of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it is necessary that these things happen, Jesus says. Why? Because it's part of God's divine purpose. How about also Luke twenty-two thirty-seven? For I tell you that it is necessary that this scripture be fulfilled in me. Or you might translate it, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And here it is. He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. How about that for divine necessity? That Jesus be numbered with the transgressors. That somehow the sin of all humanity be placed on him. Wouldn't you think that's divine purpose? That that had to happen? Because God had designed it so. Another one would be Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here it speaks of Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the prophets, of Moses and the prophets. Wouldn't you say that's part of divine purpose, that certain things must happen in order to fulfill God's purposes in the world? And if you pointed to anything, it would be, the death, the resurrection, uh, Jesus' atoning sacrifice. But here we find in this statement in Revelation that his purpose is to show his servants what must soon take place using the same word. That the things that are spoken about in the book of Revelation, and I would say the things that play themselves out even in our world, are part of God's divine purpose. This is part of the, book of Re- of the purpose of the book of Revelation and of, of the apocalypse in general, to disclose the things that must happen. That the things that are disclosed here are part of divine purpose and divine necessity. And it's just a reminder that there is purpose in the events of our world and of our lives. And I know that sometimes it feels like we're just sort of spinning without purpose. But here is the word of Revelation and of Scripture in general. There is purpose. There is divine purpose in the world and in the events that take place in the world and in our lives. And then there's the blessing on those who read. So here's our blessing today for reading this apocalypse, this prophecy, these letters. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. So there's a blessing for me today as I read it to you. There's a blessing for you today as you hear it. And hopefully a blessing for all of us as we take to heart what is written because the time is near. Now look at the end of the book of Revelation and hear this a similar blessing given here. We ended the verse 6, 22, 6, uh, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, verse 7, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. So there's a blessing at the beginning and a blessing at the end for those who read, for those who hear, and the ones who put into practice the things that they hear. Now that's the prologue. Now let's look at the greeting. 
John, and I think this is John, the son of Zebedee. He's one of the 12 apostles and one of the first four Jesus called to be one of the 12. So, so you might remember in Mark or Matthew uh, particularly, Jesus is walking along the shore early in his ministry, right at the very beginning of his public ministry in Galilee, and he sees Simon Peter and Andrew, and he says, come follow me. Well, he's Simon at the time, but he's about to be Peter. But that's Simon, Peter, Andrew, come follow me, and they leave, they leave their fishing nets, and they come follow him. And then almost immediately, he sees two more brothers who were fishing with their father in the boat, and he says, come follow me, come follow me. Well, the father's name is Zebedee. Their names are James and John. And that's the beginning of their role in the Gospels as Jesus, two of Jesus' twelve, these two, James and John. And this one, John, is that brother of James, I, I, I think. And I think he's also responsible for 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the Gospel of John. That'd be five books total. Um, so we've done 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in a winter Bible study here. I probably said that at the time, that I thought that person also wrote the book of Revelation. But I think it's the same John responsible for these five writings. And he's writing to the seven churches specifically. Um, and that's going to be the focus of the rest of what we do is on the seven churches. So we have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those specifically are the seven churches. Seven churches in Asia Minor. You know, Asia is that you've got the whole continent there, but Asia Minor is this western portion where you have these seven churches that are about 30 to 50 miles apart. And, and it appears that the letters first come to the church at Ephesus, and then we'll begin what is essentially goes north and then circles around and almost back to Ephesus in sort of a semicircle. It's like a postal route. If, if you were on the island of Patmos, which is about 40 miles off the coast uh, from Ephesus, at, at, in the first century, Ephesus was a port city. It was on the coast. It's not anymore. Uh, when I was there a few years ago, five, six years ago, uh, you, you, can, you, can, you can't even really see the ocean, the Aegean Sea. Uh, it's not an ocean, it's a sea. You can't really see the Aegean Sea from, from uh, like the theater in Ephesus because it's silted up. It's about three miles. But it was a port city in, in the first century. So you would have left from the port uh, at uh, Patmos, where John was writing the letter, and it would be a 40-mile boat ride, and you would land first at Ephesus. And it was the largest city of these seven cities. And, and the letter would be read there. And then you'd move to Smyrna. That would be the next city, about 30 miles away. And then you'd go to Pergamum, and then Thyatira. And it's just like the postal route. There's no mystery in the order. That's just the postal route. And so... Um, these are the audiences of these, uh, for these seven letters. And then here's the blessing that he gives, like normally comes in a letter. Grace and peace to you. From him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. We have this wonderful Trinitarian statement about who's responsible for the blessing. It's the one who is, 
who was and who is to come. I think that's a reference to the Father. And, and think about, isn't that a little bit of an odd order? Don't we normally say who was, who is, and who is to come? Isn't that the, the better chronological sequence? We start with the past and then move into the present and then to the future. But that's not the way it's worded here with reference to God. It's the one who is. Present tense first. Then who was. Then who is to come. And, and I think the order is meant to sort of catch your attention. That's not the normal sequence. And, and maybe it's that you can say he is because he was and because he will be, you can say he is. It, it does sound a lot like what he says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now this is not with reference to Jesus specifically. This seems to be a reference to the Father. And I'm interested for those of you who have like a red letter edition New Testament, you know where the words of Jesus are in red? You're going to find red in the book of Revelation because it's specifically Jesus that's speaking. But how about at verse 8? How many of you have a red letter edition? I'm just, just curious. Yep. Here at verse 8 when it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, how many of you, that's in red? Some of you. How many of you have a red letter, but Alpha, I am the Alpha and the Omega is not in red? Yeah. Because it... Is, should this be red letter? And that's, that's part of the problem with the red letter editions. I mean, if you're going to put the words of Jesus in red, shouldn't you put the words of the Father in some color? How about blue for the Father's words and red for Jesus' words? I, but normally, it, it's okay. I get it. But that, that does leave a little bit of a, why don't we make the words of God, the Father, in some color? But... I can't fix that this morning. But it is interesting that some red letter editions will red letter the I am the Alpha and the Omega here, and some won't because it doesn't seem to be an explicit statement of Jesus. It seems to be the Father. Now, look at uh, chapter 21, Revelation 21. I'm just interested about your red letter again. Um, 21.6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So now I'm just talking to you who have a red letter. If, if, you, if you have a red letter, but that's in black, let me see your hand. See, quite a few of you. How many of you that's in red? Oh, I, didn't, I don't see the hands. See, it's the same statement. Some of you had that in red earlier. And, and now it seems like more have it in black. Now... Look at 22:13. Let's let's start with 12. Look, I am coming soon. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to each person according to what they've done. I am the alpha and the omega. Got that in red? How many of you got a red letter? It's in red. Oh yeah. That one definitely should be a red cuz that's clearly the words of Jesus. Regardless here, we've got a reference about God as Alpha and Omega. Now, you could say A and Z. God says, I am the A and I am the Z. But it just doesn't have the same force, does it? There's something about those Greek letters, Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, uh, that just has a lot more, I don't know, cachet. 
I like it better than the A and the Z. But it's like, I am the alpha, I'm the beginning, I'm the omega, I'm the end, and I'm everything in between. I am, you could say of God, or God is the one who is, who was, and who will be. And I think these statements are, are closely related. So that's a statement, what I would say is a statement about the Father. Then, the seven spirits before his throne. Now that's an odd one. The seven spirits that are before his throne. Now I might be a little uncertain about what that would refer to. If I didn't have a statement about the Father before it and a statement about the Son after it. Doesn't that just beg for the seven spirits to be the Holy Spirit? The Father, the Son, the Spirit. It seems like a Trinitarian statement. We, we've got this statement in some other places. Uh, look, for example, in chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder in front of the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And then look over at chapter 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And then look back at chapter 3 when he's writing to the church at Sardis. Write to the church at Sardis. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven is clearly a, a symbolic number here that speaks about completion or perfection so to talk about the seven spirits of God I think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit but because he's writing to seven churches and he's going to say to every church hear what the spirit has to say to the churches it's almost as if there's seven spirits now there's one spirit one Holy Spirit but specifically here with reference to seven churches which is a number of completion. So, so I'm fine just saying I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the seven spirits because the Spirit is going to speak to each of the seven churches. And then from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now this first statement, who is the faithful witness, witness is an important word in the book of Revelation. Uh, in fact, this is the thing that the believers are supposed to do in light, even in face of suffering, in the face of a world where they feel like they may have lost control of everything. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to bear witness. We're supposed to have a testimony, even in the midst of our suffering. And, and this is the path of our victory. Look at chapter 12, verse 11. Here's one of the... If I'm picking out one of the most important passages in all of Revelation, I'm going to get around to this one. How are they going to triumph over the, the woman and the dragon? Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, the word for testimony is the same as witness. I, I think we underestimate the power of bearing witness to the truth uh, of a testimony. And, and it's almost like in Revelation, there's this law scene where 
God's people are being charged, and what are we to do? We're to bear witness to the truth. Of course, God is the judge. But I, I love this. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, by their witness. And, and some of the most important Trend, or I would say upheavals, or in a good sense, or, or, or just turning our, the, the world upside down in a positive way has happened by people who just bore witness to the truth. And uh, you can think about these early apostles who go out declaring, bearing witness of the truth of the experience they've had in Jesus. And wherever they went, they said they're turning the world upside down. By what? By, by the force of their rhetoric? by their imposing personalities, or just by bearing witness to the truth. And of course, every great movement of God has comes about by someone, usually more than one, God's people bearing witness to the truth. Just speaking a word, a testimony, your witness is a powerful thing in the face of suffering, of, of oppression, of persecution, not running and hiding, but bearing witness to the truth. And, of course, the blood of the Lamb. I don't want to diminish that. But there is power in a witness. And, and I even think about something uh, like Rosa Parks and, and what a what a monumental moment that was in American history in like 1951 I should have checked my facts on this like December 1951 50 or 51 when you remember in Birmingham you had the public transportation system where a black person you the black person could sit in a seat but if white people if there were more white people than seats then they could ask the black person to move and they'd have to give up the seat even a white man taking a black woman seat and, and I'm sure this had happened to Rosa Parks many times, but on that day, she refused to move and under the threat of arrest and prosecution, she refused to move. And in her witness after that, she, it, she said, I was just tired. So what did she decide to do that day when she refused to get up? She decided to bear witness to the truth of something. That she was a human being created in the image of God. And she was going to bear witness to that by not getting up and giving her seat to someone else. Now she had other options. I imagine she could have pulled a handgun out of her purse and shot the man who's trying to take her seat. Uh, but I have a feeling we would not be in the same place we are in the United States today. I mean, out of that whole movement of her refusing to get up comes a, a movement of, uh, of boycotting the transportation system, and Martin Luther King arises out of that whole movement. Her willingness to bear witness to the truth changed the fabric of American life. Not to say it's all the work is done, but certainly made a difference in a, in a very positive way. What if she just, her other option would be to just get up and go sit in the back? to comply, which I think in that moment would not be bearing witness to the truth. And I think there are more opportunities to look at history and see where someone did a similar thing, 
bearing witness to the truth, sometimes just the truth of my human dignity by virtue of being created in the image of God. And it's this witness that changed the world, the witness of Jesus, is the most powerful, the ultimate witness, his witness to the truth. And here he refers to him as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, looking ahead to further resurrection, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. I mean, you're not going to find any more elegant, beautiful, worshipful language than that. But notice the order again. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins and has made us to be a kingdom and priest. It's the same order. It's is, was, and is to come. Who loves us presently. Present tense, just like him who is. Who has freed us from our sins, looking to the past. And who has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory forever. I think that looks more to the future when the kingdom has fully come. So we, again, we have the language of is, was, is to come. Who loves us, who freed us, and has made us to be a kingdom uh, of priests to serve his God and Father. And then verse 7, look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. That's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. That's Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. So he puts together here an image of, that Daniel sees of the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And then of Zechariah of mourning by those who pierced him and all peoples. Mourning maybe over the price that he paid in his death, maybe mourning for themselves who are doomed because of their rejection of him. And then eight, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And now I think we're ready to get into the book of Revelation, but there's, there's your introduction. So it's time to take a break and go do whatever you must do to get ready uh, for worship. So the Lord be with you. I'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs>